is such a humble privilege to introduce Carla Webb to you today. Some of you know our church member, Missy Smith. Uh, that's kind of how I got in touch with Carla. Carla is an amazing woman of God with a powerful testimony. She is a domestic abuse survivor, a beautiful child of God with a story of redemption. And she is going to share with us today her testimony. So would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we realize that the energy in the room just shifted when I mentioned the topic of domestic abuse. God, this is something that we don't want to cover up any longer. We are the body of Christ, and we pray that, that you will give us the ears to hear exactly what each one of us is to hear this morning. I am so grateful, God, for Carla, for her boldness, for her courage, for her testimony of your goodness and your amazing grace. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just fall afresh on her right now. That you give her exactly what she is supposed to say for such a time as this. Let this be, oh God, a testimony to your honor for your glory. May your name be praised. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I feel very confident um, after hearing the worship music and the songs that were so carefully selected. I feel very confident that we are in alignment today, that we are in alignment. I could not have picked those songs to tell the story any better than if I had picked them out and chosen them myself. Woo, there is a... But even better than me picking them out, God picked them out. And he aligned it and he anointed it. So I very, feel very blessed and confident to be able to speak with you today. My Grandpa Bunner was notorious for sitting next to someone out in public that he didn't know, and he would lean over to him and he'd say, So, what's your troubles? And it absolutely mortified my grandma. Herman, leave him alone. But more times than not, that perfect stranger would open up and just spill their guts to him. So, what's your troubles? My grandpa was wise enough to know the universal truth that we all have a story. Something people would be surprised to know about us if we told them. Take me, for instance. As Joanne told you, I'm a survivor of domestic violence. And I'm guessing whenever you hear the words domestic violence, I'm not who you picture. I'm not what you think of. But for 15 years, I was in an abusive marriage. And I didn't know that what I was experiencing was considered abuse because he never hit me. And to me, Domestic violence or abuse meant he was hitting me. But one day, I'm walking through the living room, 
and Dr. Phil is on the screen. Yeah, I know. Dr. Phil, good old Dr. Phil. We can depend on him, can't we? Thank you, Oprah, for introducing us to Dr. Phil. So I'm walking through the living room, and I see on the screen, you might be in an abusive relationship if. And let's say there were 10 things on the screen. I could identify with, let's say, eight out of the 10. And I stood there in my living room, just frozen. And I thought, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. The things that I think he is doing that are wrong really are wrong. I'm not crazy. The abuse continued to escalate, and one morning, I sent my husband off to work, I put my kids on the school bus, and I drove to my parents' house, and I told them that I was finally ready to leave. And abuse, someone who's abused typically leaves their abuser on average eight times before they finally are ready to leave. And my dad went with me to the local domestic violence shelter where I met with a victim's advocate. And she sat down with me and she walked me through an exit plan. And she helped me fill out the paperwork for a restraining order. I used to think that domestic violence didn't happen to people like me, but now I know that domestic violence can and does happen to anyone. After being in an abusive relationship for many, many years, I was emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. And along the way, I made some very poor choices, some immoral choices. And I lost my job as a worship minister, something I loved and believed I was called to do. And now that was gone. While I was going through these difficult times, I felt very alone. Have you ever been in a room filled with people and you felt like you were the only person there? You were completely alone. And that's the devil. That's what he does to us. He convinces us that we are alone. He makes us feel isolated. He makes us keep secrets because we don't think anybody else has been through what we've been through. Or done what we have done. Or felt how we feel. Your story because you know you have one, it may be that you're a recovering alcoholic or maybe you're struggling with an eating disorder. Perhaps you're on the verge of filing bankruptcy or losing your house. Maybe your child has a drug addiction and you just don't know how you can help them anymore. Or possibly you just found out your dad has cancer. But we do a great job of putting on these brave faces and we post our pictures on Instagram of our happy lives and we have our Facebook lives, our fake book lives, and everything is wonderful. 
and we share inspirational quotes because we're all walking around speaking in inspirational quotes to each other. And we walk into church and we have the smiles on our faces and whenever we're asked, how you doing? We say, well, I'm just fine. Or maybe since we're in Georgia, you say, well, I'm just peachy. I had to throw that in there. I'm sorry. I know. It's so cliche. (laughs) When what we're really thinking is, if you only knew the mess my life is right now. But we say, we're just fine. So one day when I was in the middle of one of these if you only knew times in my life, I was reading my Bible And I read the story of the woman at the well, like I had many, many times, heard it in church growing up. So reading from John 4, 7 through 10, a woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Jews in those days would not be caught dead talking to a Samaritan woman. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who I am, you would ask me for a drink of living water. Skipping down to verses 13 through 18, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. And anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artisan spring within gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, sir, give me this drink of water so I won't ever get thirsty won't ever have to come back to this well again. He said, go call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she said. That's nicely put, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not even your husband. This time when I read this story, I saw it from a different perspective. I related to the woman at the well like I had never before. She had been married more than once. Check. Some considered her an adulterer. Check. She was shunned by her community. Check. The point is, not only could I see her in me, but I could see her through God's eyes for the first time. So how did Jesus see her? First, we need to understand three things. Jews were not supposed to talk to Samaritans. That was a big no-no. Two, men weren't permitted to address women without their husbands present. And three, rabbis had no business speaking to uh, such ladies as this. When the woman at the well asked Jesus, how come you, a Jew, 
are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Jesus was willing to toss the rules out the window and responded, If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who I am, you would ask me for a drink of living water. Possibly she was thinking, if you only knew who I am, (laughs) you would not be asking me for a drink of water. Because when told to go call her husband, she tells Jesus she has no husband. When the fact of the matter was, is that she had had five husbands and was currently living with a man who was not her husband. We don't know the circumstances of why she had five husbands. They don't tell us that. And in those days, it wasn't necessarily uncommon to have many husbands due to warfare and famine and disease. Five marriages wasn't necessarily what made her a sinner. But living with a man that was not her husband, that, that did. And she wanted to keep it a secret. And why? Probably because she felt ashamed. And I can relate to her. I don't feel great telling people I've been married more than once. When I have to refer to my first husband and my current husband, Well, how many husbands have you had? I don't feel great about that. I don't feel great about identifying as a victim of domestic violence. And I certainly find it especially difficult to explain why I'm not a worship minister anymore. So after being out of ministry for several years, I started praying this prayer. You have called me higher. You have called me deeper. I will go where you lead me, Lord. And the more I prayed it, the more I felt God calling me back into a position of leadership. It was exciting, but it was scary. I had been in a position of leadership, and I failed. People believed in me, and I let them down. And more than that, I hurt them, and I broke their trust in me. And as I continued to think about it, I decided God was not calling me back into the church. He was calling me to champion the cause of domestic violence awareness, which is a worthy and noble cause. So I threw myself wholeheartedly into domestic violence awareness and accomplished a lot in the past few years. I've spoken at major corporations. I'm chairing a task force for my county and have even been nominated for a Celebration of Leadership Award in my community. And even though I was accomplishing all of these great things for domestic violence awareness, I found myself sinking deeper and deeper into depression. I didn't feel like doing anything. I didn't want to go anywhere. And I only left my house because I knew I should, because it's not good to not go outside of your house. I would look out the window at the sunshine, and I would think, I should go outside. And then I wouldn't. 
I would sit there and do nothing. And this was completely unlike me. I'm a go, go, go. I'm a, when my parents were growing up, have to sit me down and say, you've got to stop. You need some sleep. And so this not wanting to leave my house was completely abnormal for me. And I found myself at my lowest point, and I finally decided that I needed to get some help. So I went back to counseling. And after answering a series of questions and talking about my experience with, you know, domestic violence and abusive marriage, she asked me about music, specifically if I had used music as a part of my healing process, because I'm a music teacher. Makes sense. I was a worship minister. Makes sense. I said, anytime anybody asks me about singing and leading worship, I'd say, no, no. I just don't feel like that's what God is calling me to do right now. And I told her it had not been a, a, a place of uh, healing for me. And then the tears came. And we had arrived at the source of my darkness and my heaviness and the boulder that I just couldn't get off of me. And it just sat on me, holding me down, not allowing me to move or breathe or sing. And just a few months earlier, you know, that's the, that's the wonderful thing of perspective, of being able to move forward a little bit. Because at the time you're thinking, what is going on here? Just a few months earlier, a woman that I've never met face-to-face, and I've only talked on the phone one time, a mutual friend connected us and thought we would, we would be good, be good for us to talk to each other. She asked, we, throughout our conversation, I was telling her a little bit about my, about my story, and she said, asked me, why aren't you leading worship or singing anymore? And I told her, I just don't feel like that that's what God, is, that's not where I am right now, and that's not where God is calling me right now. And she said, is it okay if I tell you something that I think God wants you to know? Sure. I mean, if, someone, if God's got a message for me from somebody else, I want to hear it. And she said, God is a gentleman, and he's waiting on you. He's waiting on you to release your worship to him. He will never force you to do something you're not ready to do, but he's waiting on you. My whole life, singing had been like breathing to me. My counselor said, explain, uh, tell me about music to you. And I said, it's like air to me. Singing is like breathing. It's how I express myself. And it brought me so much joy. But it wasn't bringing me joy anymore, and I had lost my reason to sing. I keep a journal, and many times I write out my prayers because my, I get scattered, and whenever I'm, I'm, I think, okay, I'm going to pray. And then I start praying. And then I start making a grocery list. Or I start thinking about, oh, I didn't turn the dryer on. So I write out my prayers so that I can stay focused and get from the beginning to the end of a prayer. 
And this is one prayer that I wrote. Father, I need your help. I want to release my worship to you. I want to sing again, but I don't know how. I keep thinking I have released my shame and my guilt to you, yet I still feel so heavy. I want to be free. I want to experience joy, the kind of joy only you can give. I want that. Put in me a new song, your song, the song you are singing over me. Let me hear it. Place it in my heart so that your song is sung in every heartbeat. Let these not just be words, Lord. Release in me what is holding me back so I can release my worship to you. And that darkness that had come over me the past year was knowing that I was not walking in God's calling on my life. He was calling me back to the church, but I was still carrying the burden of shame and condemnation, and I was allowing it to bury me. And then one day in church, at not an appropriate time in the service, Lord have mercy. This did not happen during the altar call. And it was a little inconvenient. But this feeling, physical feeling came over me that I was literally being shoved down to the ground. And I couldn't get up. I couldn't stand. It was burying me. And I looked over to my friend who was sitting next to me, and I looked at her, and I just said, help me. Help me. And I was down to the ground. And and she came over, and another lady came over, and they laid hands on me. And right there in the middle of the service, whenever the pastor was still up preaching his sermon, they right there, then and there, laid hands on me, and they prayed over me. And I began weeping and wailing. You know in the Bible when it talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth? That's how it felt for me. And I just, I literally just started screaming. That evening at the prayer service, we had a prayer service at our church that night. And the people of the church once again laid hands on me and she prayed. And they prayed over me. And the pastor's wife, she grabbed me by the shoulders. And she said, Carla, this is your line in the sand. You are crossing over and you are not going back. You are only moving forward. You are laying your guilt and your shame right here. And you're stepping across that line and you're never going back. And I was like that woman at the well when she said to Jesus, when Jesus said to her, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who I am, you would ask me for a drink of living water. I was so thirsty and I had a decision to make. Was I going to accept the gift God has for me? Was I going to see him 
for who he is? Was I going to ask him for a drink of living water so I never had to thirst again? John 4, 25 through 26. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything. I am he, said Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. Verse 29. Come see a man who knew all about the things I did, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? Jesus knew all about the things the woman had done. He knew her inside and out. And yet he didn't care about any of it. Jesus knew the gift he had for her. And all he wanted her to know was the gift that God had for her and for her to see him for who he is. He offered her the opportunity to be refreshed and renewed by the living water and to never thirst again. The next morning after the prayer service where they laid hands on me, I woke to a text from a friend of mine. And the text said, as I prayed for you just now, I saw a birdcage and you were sitting at the open door like it was still closed. The Lord says, you are free to fly and make glorious music with your open mouth. The old has gone and the new has come. Carrying the burden of shame and condemnation served no purpose. It was not serving me, and it certainly was not serving God. And the only thing it was doing was keeping me from serving God. I had confessed and repented of my sin, and he didn't even remember it anymore. And yet, I still insisted upon carrying that burden. If I could not lay my burdens at the foot of the cross and trust God to take them from me, carry them for me, then I made the cross pointless. The cross serves no purpose. If you cannot trust that you can lay your burdens at the foot of the cross and that he will take them and has taken them for you. Each of us has our if-you-only-knew story. The question is, are you going to let that story define you? Are you going to continue to be buried by the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of that story? Or are you going to see yourself the way God sees you and accept the gift, the gift that he's just, you're letting that gift sit underneath the Christmas tree all year long and you're not opening it. You would never do that. 
You would never let a gift, a birthday gift, a Christmas gift, a valent, you would never let a gift just sit there with not, without opening it. But we sit there and, re, and don't accept the gift that God has for us, and we do not open it. So this was not only my moment of truth, but this is your moment of truth also. Make today your line in the sand. And whatever that story is that you've been repeating over and over and over again, this is your line in the sand. Step on over. Leave it and only move forward. Quit going back and picking it back up again. Stay focused. Move forward. And leave it behind. Come see a man who knows all about the things I did. Who knows me. Who knows you. Inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? I am he, said Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer, and you don't have to look any further. At the end of the first session with my counselor, she gave me three assignments. One, pray for willingness to lean in to the healing process. Two, commit to the process. And three, write a verse to a song. That's what I get for being a music teacher. I have to write a verse to a song. Well, I didn't write a verse to a song, but I wrote a poem. And I will share that poem with you. Death, despair, bondage, condemnation. This was not meant to be my destination. You promised me life and to set me free, but I kept clinging to something trying to bury me. Pushed, shoved, down to the ground, not being able to hear the sound of your voice calling to me. You are clean. You are free. I sat in the cage with the door open wide, too scared to sing, too scared to fly. Then you reached down and lifted up my face and said, look around, my child. You are filled with grace, my grace. It's nothing you have done but freely given by the Holy One. I came to earth to take your pain, so why do you insist upon staying in these chains? You lock yourself in the cage of your mind. Open your eyes and you will find the door is open and always has been. The only ties that bind are the ones within. So be free, my child. It's time to soar and fly out that open door. It's time. It's time. It's your time.
come see a man who knows all about it. He is the Messiah. And he is a gentleman. And he is waiting on you.